Now gazing into his crystal ball of sports facts and figures and ready to transcribe the answers to your questions about sports, their rules, records, and interpretations is France Locks, Dean of Baseball Announcers and Sports Commentators. Greetings, sports fans, and welcome from the Sports Answer Man. The Sports Answer Man answers your questions, your problems about sports. It may be just checking up on an old or odd record to settle a quarrel. It may involve the proper interpretation of a basketball rule, the specific chucker of a polo game, records for distance races, or who won a Rose Bowl contest. But whatever your sports tickler might be, if you want the answer, want the facts, then mail it to France Locks, the sports answer man in care of this station. The umpires call play ball, Bob, so let's get the first one over the plate. Baseball it is, France, and from J.H. Geffeke of Pekin, Illinois, is a horsehide question. When did the big league teams first go in for spring training? I've talked to some old-timers around Pekin, and they tell me that they could recall when no team ever went 3,000 miles to get into shape for six months' work. Well, as far back as I can trace, the first club to venture out of its own domain to condition itself for a major league season was back in 1886 when the old Phillies of George Wright went all the way from Philadelphia to Charleston, South Carolina. On the same spring, Cap Anson took the old Chicago Colts down to Hot Springs to get them in shape. However, the first team to ever train in Florida in modern-day baseball was the 1913 club of the St. Louis Browns. It was the Brownie club of that year that really pioneered the Florida site for spring training. And right now, about three-quarters of your clubs wind up in Florida with the rest of them training on the West Coast or in Texas. Ball two, strike two. They're taking a cut at everything that Dean serves up there. Trying to get that tying run around. Oak is a fast enough boy on his feet. Ready for that next ball to be pitched. Umpire dusts off the home plate. The sun has gone back up a cloud somewhere. We can't see the cloud, but it's somewhere off to the west. Then the saddest game I believe I ever lost and the toughest game I ever lost... I hurt my arm in between 34 and 38, and I was sold to the Chicago Cubs for $185,000 in four ball players and with my sore arm. And we won the pennant that year, and I was pitching the second game against the New York Yankees. Cup fans are yelling for Dizzy to hold him. Run around first, ready to go with the pitch. Dizzy stretches, steps off the mound as he finds out that the hitter has stepped out of the batsman's box. Ball three, strike two, two down, and the runner on first can go with the pitch. Dean is pitching to Salkart. Dean stretches. And uh, in the eighth inning, I had him beat three to two. And Saul said he came up to plate and hit a three and two pitch into the left field seat for a home run and beat me four to three. Well, I didn't have a thing on the ball. It was a lot of difference throwing that nothing ball up there in 38 and he was that far ball in 34. All three, strike two, two men down and hold on first base. Dean ready to pitch this ball down to Crosetti. Dean swings out of the mound. Goes the rubber, runner on first can go with the pitch on a three and two with two down. There he goes. Here's the pitch. There goes the ball for a hell of a high, 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 long drive. Out in the left field stand for a home run. Garcetti hits the home run out into the left field stand, and the score has now changed complexion. It's the Yankees four and the Cubs three. Two runs coming in, and that's only hit number five off the pitching of Dean. A well-hit ball. He's been aiming for that all afternoon. The Yankees are all jumping up and down over there on the bench, and they're patting Crossetti on the head and hitting him on the back. Crossetti finally got the first home run of the World Series. There goes the ball for a high foul toward first. No sense going for that. It's way back in there. I was taken out of the ball game, and Gabby Hart was our manager that year. I uh, went over to the dugout, and I really felt sad. And the fans in the Chicago ballpark, something like 45,000 people, stood up and cheered as I left the mound 
And uh, when I started going to the dugout, you could hear the pin drop. I finally went in on into the clubhouse, and the fellow I saw up there first was a grand old man of baseball, Connie Mack. He put his arms around my shoulder, and I sort of felt a little better. He says, Sonny, he says, you pitched a great ball game out there with what you had on the ball. He says, there's one game I'd like to see you won, although it was against our American League club. Jerome Hanna, Dizzy Dean, was born on January 16, 1910 in Lucas, Arkansas, only attending school into the second grade. He made his professional debut in 1930 for the St. Louis Cardinals, sticking with the big club in 1932. The team was soon nicknamed the Gas House Gang for their on- and off-field exploits. Two years later, Dean was the 1934 World Series team's ace. His brother Paul was also on the pitching staff. For the next three years, Dean won 78 and lost just 32. Paul won 43 games of his own. The Cardinals' biggest rivals in the 1930s were the New York Giants. Those games with the Giants were something. This is just a short story, and it's about that old favorite of mine, Pepper Martin. You know, we did have some great games with the Giants, and I guess one of the toughest hitters I ever faced was the manager of the ball club, Bill Terry. I always liked to pitch against Bill, even if he did make it kind of rough for me. One day I had him two strikes and nothing real quick. I tried to sneak the next one through there, and Terry hit it right back through the box. A mile a minute. Brother, he liked to took a leg off old Dizzy's. And Pepper Martin was playing third base for us then, and while I was getting ready to pitch to the next hitter, Pepper walks over to the mound, and, and he was really a-grinning. He put up his hands so nobody else could hear it, and he says, real serious, Jerome, I don't believe you're playing Terry deep enough. <laughs> Even with Dean's brilliance, his Cardinals won only one World Series before arm troubles derailed his career. He then went into broadcasting, calling baseball for radio and then TV from 1941 through 1965. He had his own radio show for NBC in the summer of 1948. During that summer's All-Star break, the Brooklyn Dodgers fired their longtime manager, Leo DeRocher. DeRocher signed with the Giants, who moved their manager, Mel Ott, to a front office position. And speaking of managers, how about that managerial shakeup in the East yesterday? Well, Frank, that's something I'm glad to talk about, and it was really a shock to me, and I'm sure it's a shock to a lot of uh, people in baseball over the country. Nobody even dreamed that Leo DeRosa would be let out as a Brooklyn Dodger and go to the New York Giants. And Mel Ott, who was manager of the New York Giants, went to the office. Well, I want to say something about those two boys. I played against them, and I played with them. They're two great fellows. And just like baseball men all over the country say, when you're going pretty good, why, the manager's always in there. But if you happen to hit a slump... When you have a little bad luck, why, they say, the first thing is say, let's fire the manager. So that's exactly why they made that change, and we can see which is going to do the best, because Bert Schott managed the ball club in Brooklyn last year. He's back there now as manager. The New York Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers have changed managers, and they're practically tied for fourth place, about a half a game separating one another. And by the time the season's over, we'll see which one of the clubs prosperous by the change of those managers. All three New York teams missed the playoffs that year. That same summer, Gordon McClendon founded a radio network called the Liberty Broadcasting System. In 1948, McClendon's Liberty Broadcasting Network, based in Texas, began recreating games on a national scale. Through an ingenious mixture of news wire reports 
and sound effects, McClendon's recreations were heard by listeners all over the country who found them more interesting and exciting than the actual games. McClendon built the network up to nearly 500 affiliates, second in size only to mutual broadcasting. His success led to restrictions on Major League Baseball broadcasts in minor league franchise areas and blackouts within a 75-mile range of Major League cities. It was a disaster for the network, which folded on May 16, 1952.